Okay, so we've got the reading today is Acts 11, 19 to chapter 12, verse 24. So it's a big chunk. I'll give you a second to scroll or flip on over to it. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread through the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. It was about this time that King Herod arrest, arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival on unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out, of, out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that, the, what, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. He also, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. People knocked at the door entrance, and a servant named Rhoda come to answer the, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out, you're out of your mind, they told her, when she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must, have, must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. 
After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted, trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Thanks, David, and uh, good morning, everyone. Great to, great to be back with you. Thank you on behalf of Alicia and I, as I completely mangle up this microphone. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Just edit that out of the online recording. Um, thanks everyone for the, the support you've given us over the last couple of weeks. Thank you for the, the text messages, the meals, the advice, the prayer. Everything's been, been much appreciated and it's, it really has made us value being part of a church family during a, a season of life like this one. So, so thank you very much. Uh, now, if you're here this morning as someone who follows Jesus, then you probably know in your head at least that God is in control. But at face value, it doesn't always seem that way does it? Um, I'm sure you've had moments, I know I have, where you've, you've wondered, how could a God who is good and who is in control let this happen? Uh, Christmas Eve, just a few weeks ago, there were five Christian men in Nigeria who were kidnapped by an Islamic extremist group. And there was a, a video released a few days later of the men being executed. The members of that church, if you, if you put yourself in their shoes, the, the people left in that church are not only grieving the loss of these men, but they're also living under the threat of the same persecution. They're wondering, am I going to be the next one who this happens to? And it's just a small taste of the persecution that the church faces around the world. And we wonder, how could devastating tragedies like this happen if God is in control? In our own context here in Australia, it feels a bit unworthy comparing it with Nigeria, but it is hard, isn't it, living in a country that isn't just moving further and further away from the gospel message, but a country that's becoming more opposed to the gospel message. God's control can be difficult to recognize when the world around us so often seems so anti-Christian. Now, Acts chapter 12, which we've just read, tells us about a very dark time for the early church, a time of persecution and opposition, a time when the people in the church must have wondered if this was, if this was it for the church, if God was really in control. And yet this passage shows us that God is in control. His word will prevail. When the church accepts the call to be on mission to the surrounding world with the gospel message, persecution will come, but God's word will prevail. The book of Acts, which we've been going through over the last few weeks and a little bit last year as well, um, begins with Jesus telling his disciples that they are to be his spirit-empowered witnesses to the surrounding world, to take the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth, the news that salvation and forgiveness of sins are found in Jesus alone, the crucified, resurrected Lord. And this passage begins in just that way, with God's church on mission, followers of Jesus, spreading the word beyond Jerusalem. Now, at first they preach only to Jewish people, but then in the, the large city of Antioch, they start proclaiming the word to Gentiles as well, non-Jewish people. And many hear the news and believe that the church continues 
to grow, the borders expand. And what we're meant to see here is that God is in control. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. This was God doing this. Uh, Notice in verse 23, when when the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to, to check out what's going on, it doesn't say Barnabas saw what a great job of evangelism the church was doing. No, it, said, it says Barnabas saw what the grace of God had done. In fact, this whole mission movement was started back in Acts chapter 8 under God's sovereignty uh, when Stephen was stoned and killed and the church was persecuted and, and disciples were pushed out to these areas that they're now reaching. So God was in control all along even when it would have seemed so much like he wasn't. Uh, looking at the church that's now forming in Antioch, we can see that it's, it's an outward-looking, mission-minded church that we've got. It was so distinctively Christ-centered that the people earned the nickname Christians, which has stuck for a while since then. It was a church built on God's word as well. It was the spreading of the word that first brought the church into being, and they continued to sit under that word. So when Saul and Barnabas arrive in verse 26, they don't just launch straight into more mission programs, but they spend a whole year teaching the church, building that solid foundation in God's word. There was also great care and concern both for the local church and for the wider church as well. They've got Barnabas there with them, whose nickname we saw earlier in the book of Acts is Son of Encouragement. So that's a pretty good guy to have in a church. And verse 23, he models that encouragement to them. He encourages them to remain true to the Lord in their hearts. And they look to the wider church family as well. So when a famine strikes, they make sure that they're providing for the needs of the Christians in Judea who were more affected by the famine. And so in a nutshell, this was a church that loved God, they loved each other, and they loved everyone. Okay, so how do we compare? How do we compare with this early church? Now, I'm not talking so much about how many people are being converted, that sort of thing, but how do we compare at a heart level with this church? Now, I'm going to give you two images, and I'm going to let you have a think about which one most closely reflects the way that you think about church. So firstly, a cruise ship. Secondly, a rescue boat. Cruise ship and a rescue boat. It hasn't been a great year for cruise ships, but just kind of bear with me on that. But a cruise ship is all about my needs, my desires, my comfort. I'm a consumer. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm paying for it. If I enjoy it, I might save up my money and go on another one in a couple of years' time. If I don't, then I'll probably just write a bad Google review or ask for a refund or just choose a different company next time. A rescue boat, though, is a bit different to that, isn't it? There's no passengers on a rescue boat. It's all crew. And you're on that boat because there are people in the water who need saving. There are people who need saving. There's a clear mission. A cruise ship, rescue boat. Which one of those most closely reflects the way that you think about church. Now, the point of that illustration isn't to say that we're all lazy consumers who should be doing more, so please please don't hear me saying that, but it's to get us thinking at a heart level about why we do church, what our mission is as a church. Is church something that we do 
purely for us. Well, on one level, church is something that we do for us because we want to be growing closer to God. We want to be growing in our faith, growing in our character, understanding God's word better, growing in our relationships with each other, caring for one another, being cared for by one another. Those are irreplaceable things in a church. But it's not the sum total of what a church is. Our love for God and our love for each other are the foundation for loving and reaching out to people who don't yet know Jesus. We're called to be a church on mission to the lost. It strikes me that if the church wasn't meant to be on mission, the book of Acts would be a pretty boring book to read. The catch, though, is that when the church is on mission and the word is spreading, we can expect persecution. We can expect persecution. That's the experience of the early church here, isn't it? James, one of the apostles, is taken into prison and killed. Peter, another apostle, is arrested and he's waiting on death row for the same fate. The Jerusalem church has a powerful enemy, a powerful king opposing it. King Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the the king who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby and seems like nastiness kind of runs down the family line. This is a dark day. Things look really bad for the church at this point. Let's, Let's not hide from that. And so who is in control here? Is Herod in control or is God in control? See, at face value, just looking at what's going on here, you'd have to say that all signs point to Herod being in control. He's the big, powerful king. He's got all the artillery. He's got the the main guy in the church locked up in prison. But the church does have one weapon in its arsenal, though, and that's prayer. And in a moment, we'll see what happens when they pray. But the reality is that when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, whether whether that's being faithfully proclaimed um, privately in a, in a one-on-one conversation or whether it's being faithfully proclaimed corporately in a church, uh, we should expect that there will be opposition and persecution that will come our way. The devil is not just going to let it happen. Uh, so as you heard, we've got a little 17-day-old baby called, called Rory. He's um, very, very cute and adorable, but he's got a very weak immune system. That's one of his weaknesses at the moment. And um, I've done a bit of research and found out that mosquito bites, which you know, are just annoying for an adult, are actually really, really, really dangerous for a newborn baby. And so if I see a mosquito in our house... I'm not just going to let it sort of fly by and have a, have a nice day. I'm going to give it the full treatment because I don't want it getting anywhere near Rory and causing him any harm. And in the same way, the, the devil doesn't want to see people saved. He wants to, to draw people further and further away from Jesus. And so when he sees the gospel message being proclaimed, he's going to want to put a stop to it as well. And quite often, persecution will be the way that he goes about that. Opposition comes because the gospel message is like a red rag to a bull to any other worldview. Uh, Now, if you're here this morning just checking out what church is and what Christianity is all about, the gospel message, the, the message that lies at the heart of Christianity is that all people were created by God uh, to be in relationship with God and, and to please him. But we fall short of being the people who God calls us to be. And so... We deserve God's judgment. 
But that's not the end of the story because we can be forgiven and accepted by God because Jesus took our judgment on himself on the cross. And so when we accept Jesus as our king, when we accept his death in our place, we're saved. There's no other way to enjoy eternal life with God. There is no other way to avoid God's judgment. See, there is no one, absolutely no one in the world who is so good that they don't need Jesus. No one is that good. And at the same time, there is no one so bad that they're beyond saving. There's no one so far gone that Jesus can't help them. The gospel really puts us all on a level playing field. Uh, And so if you truly understand this message at a heart level, it is so liberating. It's comforting. It's life-changing. But if you don't, then there's a good chance you'll find it really offensive, actually. How dare you say, I'm not a good enough person to please God? You may find it judgmental, exclusive, arrogant. How can Christians think they're the only ones who are right? How can they have a monopoly on truth? Well, if that's where you're at, then why not ask the person who invited you along today, the person who is sitting next to you, the the person you chatted to over morning tea, even have a chat to Chris or myself. We'd love to have a chat to you about why it is that we believe this offensive message. We'd love to tell you more about it. For those of us who have accepted the gospel message, for those of us who have built our lives on it and want to tell other people about it, be warned that it's a message that will bring opposition. People won't just always respond positively to it, but it still needs to be proclaimed. People still need to hear it. Okay, back to Acts chapter 12. The gospel has been proclaimed. The church has proclaimed the gospel. Uh, Herod and the Jews have reacted violently to it, and the situation for the church right now is looking really, really bleak. So is the church about to be squashed before it's had the chance to properly begin? The the people in the church must be wondering, is this it for us? And yet God's word prevails. God is in control. Peter's exit from prison isn't a clever escape. It's a miraculous rescue. This is all God doing this. Sentries, soldiers, and chains, they are no match for God's power. If you notice, Peter is asleep when it begins. He doesn't even think it's real what's going on. Even the gates open for him. He doesn't even have to open the gate. Peter contributes nothing to this at all. And of course, the irony is that when he reaches Mary's house in verse 12, where um, the disciples are having a prayer night for his rescue, he interrupts his own prayer night. And the answer to the prayer in real time is so staggering that they can't even believe it's happened. The servant forgets to answer the door. She's so amazed at what's happened. So the mighty King Herod has been beaten by a far stronger king. Herod takes his anger out on the guards. He he has them executed. And then God's justice catches up with him. Herod uh, goes off, gives a speech, receives praise from people. They, They say, this is the voice of a God when they hear him. And Herod doesn't give, because Herod doesn't give the praise to God, an angel of the Lord strikes him down. He's eaten by worms and he dies. Very graphic way to, to end the Bible reading there. And it, it, sounds, it sounds a bit out there, but it actually matches up very closely with a secular historian of that time who writes that um, Herod was away on a speaking trip, came down with severe belly pain and died 
five days later. And verse 24, where we finish the Bible reading, gives us a powerful contrast, doesn't it? We have the word of God continuing to to spread and to flourish, while the king who tried to halt the word of God dies an agonizing death. In fact, take a step back and look at the reversal that's gone on in this whole chapter. It begins with James dead, Peter in jail, the mission of the church in severe jeopardy, and Herod seeming to be in complete control. Fast forward 24 verses, it ends with Herod dead, Peter free, the word of God continuing to spread. So who's in control here? Well, it's been God all along, hasn't it? His word will ultimately prevail. It prevailed in the early church, and the gospel message will continue to spread and take roots all around the world today. It will continue to spread and take roots in Nigeria, despite the persecution that's taken place there, despite the horrific violence, God's word will prevail. Though it may not always seem to be prevailing. Because I don't know if you thought this when we were, when we were reading it through, it's all very well and good for Peter to be miraculously rescued, but surely people were praying for James as well. Surely the church gathered together and prayed for James to be released as well. Why was Peter spared, but not James? Why would God let any of his people be martyred? Why would he let those five men in Nigeria suffer the fate that they did? Why would he ever let his church go through violent opposition or any sort of opposition for that matter? Well, on one level, the answer is that God's purposes go far beyond our sight. God had important work that he wanted James to do. James had done that work. The work was now complete. It was his time to go to glory. There was more work for Peter still to do, though. And and we'll see that in the next couple of weeks as we continue through the book of Acts. God is in control. He hears our prayers and he answers them. He, He either answers them with the things that we pray for or with something that, um, with an eternal perspective that only God has, something that is far better than what we ask for. And he works through prayer here to rescue Peter and to keep the gospel message advancing, to keep the word prevailing. And so the church is called to be on mission, taking the word of God, the gospel message, to the surrounding world. This is going to bring opposition But God is always in control, and his word will ultimately prevail and prosper. Nothing the world throws at the church will bring it down. See, almost 2,000 years after Herod had James and Peter thrown into jail, when things seemed so out of control, two millennium later, the gospel message continues to flourish, often in places where Christians are most heavily and violently persecuted. The church is on mission. God is in absolute control. But it won't always be comfortable. It won't always be comfortable. We've put forward a pretty uncomfortable vision for our church for the next couple of years, planting a new church at the end of next year. Why do we want to do that? We we want to reach new people with the gospel. It's not just an uncomfortable vision. It's a humanly impossible vision vision, because God alone has power to grow his church. We're asking him to use us. 
for his glory and for people who don't yet know Jesus to respond to his gracious offer of salvation with repentance and faith and to be saved. Wouldn't that be great? And we have the same weapon in our arsenal that the early church did back in Acts chapter 12. Prayer. Ultimately, as a church, we we don't rely on a bold vision or a clever mission statement or smart ideas or anything of our own doing. We rely on God to use us, to glorify him and to grow his kingdom. And so this year, we're going to be a praying church. We're going to run prayer nights each term. We'd love to have you as many people along to those as we can allow with COVID safe stuff to to be able to pray uh, for the vision of our church. We're going to be providing our growth groups with prayer points about how we can pray for the vision of our church, how we can pray for each other, how we can pray for our mission partners around the world and, and for the great work that they're doing. God has called us as his church to be on mission. He wants the name of Jesus to be heard and known around the Adelaide Hills and all around the world. And he's in control. If we're united as a church family, as a praying church family, praying for missional growth, every adult, every basement member, every child, praying for God to do amazing things, for him to work through us, to bring him glory, to reach people with the good news of Jesus. Well, it's exciting to think how God might use that. So let me pray for us this year. Father in heaven, thank you that you're in control, even on those times where things seem so far out of control. We know that you are calling the shots and we pray that as a church, you would help us to boldly be on mission, to accept that call to mission that you've given us that you would help us to endure whatever persecution comes our way, knowing that you're in control. And we ask that you would work through us to grow your kingdom, to bring people to you, to glorify your name. And we bring before you the church in Nigeria and all around the world where our brothers and sisters endure things we can't even imagine. We pray that the truth of you being in control will be real in their hearts, that you would give them strength to endure and that your word would flourish no matter what the circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.